Good morning. Good morning. So happy that all of you guys are here. My name is Fraser Armstrong. If you are a first-time visitor, uh, it is we're just it's just our privilege and our honor to have you with us today. Uh, this day we have been excited for it to arrive because it marks the beginning of our um, passage where we're going to be looking and, and walking our way through the book of James. But it comes with a little bit of a twist. We have actually decided as a uh, as a as a body of church members, we have decided to build community around God's word throughout the week. And how we are doing is that is we have a congregational reading plan that is called the most important thing. And as you read through the congregational reading plan, you will see that you were you were asked to read James uh, 1 verses 1 through 18. And we also have a place on our website where you can go and just anonymously click to add your uh, to add your name, but not really your name, to add your count to the list. And we had 100 people say that they had read the passage that we will now be uh, preaching and teaching out of today. And I am so very excited about that. We built community around the word of God throughout the week. And you guys clicked that. And I know that many of us, many of you guys probably read the passage, but maybe didn't visit the website to click. So we know it's more than 100 people, but I couldn't be more excited that we are building community around the word of God throughout the week. And now we will find ourselves in James 1, verses 1 through 18. It is a longer passage, and for the sake of time, we are going to read through it in chunks as opposed to reading through it once and then reading through it again. Uh, And I might even, with that, we had some other things going on today, I might even go a little bit, a little bit past 1130. So please give me some grace and leeway there. I like to get you guys out of here on time. We might just be a little bit late today. If you have to leave, please feel free. Um, I will be here till the bitter end. Um, But let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to James 1, 1 through 18. And we will begin with uh, the understanding that this passage is largely... It's a, it's a pretty decent-sized passage, but it is about trials and maturity and faith. Trials and maturity and faith. Let's go ahead and just say that together. Trials and maturity and faith. Oh, my. Trials and maturity and faith. Thank you. Trials and maturity and faith. Stop. That's enough. Thank you for doing that. I love you guys, and I think some of you are starting to tolerate me because of God's grace. Uh, But yeah, we're talking about trials and maturity and faith, oh my. And I want to kind of show you, and maybe you saw these divisions of the text as you were reading this week. These are not just my divisions. There are people, once again, much smarter than me who have found these same divisions in the text um, and kind of outlined it that way. First off, we see the relationship of trials and maturity and faith, oh my, in verses 2 through 4. Then uh, James will show us some examples of trials and maturity and faith in verses 5 through 12. And then we will find what I think is the most important thing about trials and maturity and faith found in verses 13 through 18. And before we dive in, let's pray over the, the teaching and the preaching of the word of God. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its perfection. God, thank you that it can work despite my imperfection. Would you help my imperfection to get out of the way of your word's perfection? And may we read it 
And may we be authentically changed by it. May we not just be hearers of the word, but may we, by your grace, be doers. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are with me at James 1, verse 1, go ahead and say, come on. All right, very, very well then, we shall go. It says, we're starting with the relationship of trials and maturity and faith found in verses two through four. The relationship of trials and maturity and faith. Look with me at verse one. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pause and look at these verses together. I think on one level, these verses make sense to us because we see this natural progression of trials and maturity and faith. And we understand that this, we understand that, listen, if trials come, it is accomplishing something in me that would not be accomplished if the trials didn't come. But we may kind of fall into a little trap there along the way and thinking that James is just writing about the school of hard knocks that makes us tough. That if it hadn't happened that way, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Because of that adversity, I was able to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm stronger and tougher than I was before. The great hymn writer and theologian, Sister Kelly Clarkson, wrote it this way. She says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand a little taller. Doesn't mean I'm lonely when I'm alone. Amen. What doesn't kill you makes a fighter. Footsteps even lighter. Doesn't mean I'm over because you're gone. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stronger. Just me, myself, and I. I. Amen, Sister Kelly. But if we're not careful, we will just go down the same path as Sister Kelly and say, James is saying that if I go through tough stuff, I will come out on the other side tougher and better. And there may be a little bit of truth to that, but I don't think that's what James is getting at. We can also go to the completely other end of the spectrum and say, oh, look, this doesn't make any sense at all. Because I don't know about you, but when James says in verse, what is it? Where I think it's verse, uh, he says in verse two, he says, consider it great joy when you fall into trials. May I be honest with you and tell you that that does not make any sense to me. I don't like trials. I hate them. They get in my way. They mess with my expectations. They attack my peace. I don't like them. I'm wearing this bow tie today in honor of Mr. Isaiah, who likes bow ties, even though I do not. I do not like bow ties. I do like Mr. Isaiah. And I had to go through trial and error with this bow tie many times. And I don't like trial and error. I like trial and success. Trial and error is two bad things in a row, and I don't desire it. I was, in, I was on trial once. 
for a traffic ticket. They had me dead to rights, and I actually went to the courtroom and stood before the judge, and I looked around at all the other people there, and I said, this is not my ministry. I don't belong here. Check, please. I paid it, and I left because I don't like trials of any kind. They do not bring me joy. But I think that maybe we might fall into a trap, not only of thinking that James is talking about the the school of hard knocks, we might fall into the trap that thinking James says, every time you hit your thumb with that hammer, you just got to be like, oh, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to glorify you. What a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon. He's not telling you to put on a, a, a fake smile either. The nugget of truth that James leaves for us is found in verse 3 where he says, this is how we can consider it joy. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And not only that, endurance will have, will have its, must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The first thing in our passage, the first thing in our outline is the relationship between trials, maturity, and faith. Oh my. And the first point that I believe James is making is that trials will never lead to spiritual maturity without faith. A trial will just be a trial that will make you tough or will make you sensitive. It will leave you tough or it will leave you scarred for life. But a trial interposed and interjected with faith, faith in what we will get there, will lead to spiritual maturity. A trial's just a trial that will not lead to maturity outside of faith in Christ and in the truth of his word. It's the first thing is the relationship I believe James is telling us and teaching us between trials, maturity, and faith. Second, let's keep reading and we will find um, the first conclusion, my friend. My first conclusion. Yes, thank you, my friend. Uh, It says the only way trials will ever lead to maturity is because of faith. It's our first conclusion that I believe James uh, helps us draw in verses 2 through 4. Let us continue uh, into verses 5 through 12. You've probably already read these throughout the week, but we will uh, read them again. These will be, verses 5 through 12 will be the examples. James gives some examples of trials and maturity and faith. Oh my. Here we go with the, with the verses. He says, uh, let's go to uh, 5 verse 12, my friend, and we will find... Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and unbegrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways." Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. But verse 12 says something different. It says, blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
he gives us some examples of trials and maturity and faith. Now, what we might be tempted to do is that say, oh, all of a sudden James went rogue and he started talking about wisdom and, and doubting and then he mentioned like, like riches. No, it's all within the context of trials and maturity and faith. He is presenting the idea that the lack of wisdom and the presence of doubt and the problem of riches are all trials that we will encounter. As we go through those, those ideas of the lack of wisdom, luckily, that's something that was relevant in James's time, but we do not struggle with the lack of wisdom today, do we? Not a struggle for us. We're so bright and intelligent. And no, can I tell you, there's two pandemics going on. One of them you know about, and the other one is the lack of wisdom. In a day where we can get information at the push of a button and we can know anything about anything and anyone that ever lived in just, just by doing a voice search, we don't even have to type it in anymore. Information is not wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. It comes from his word. And information is not wisdom. We are suffering. We are going through a trial in our modern era, and that trial is the lack of wisdom. And if we address faith to that trial, it will lead to spiritual maturity. But trials, this is the lack of wisdom, is a trial. We have not, James has not just gone rogue on a different subject. He is presenting the lack of wisdom as a trial that we will encounter. Yet what does uh, the sometimes sad King Solomon write? God desires to give, I love the way James says it, God desires to give, um, God desires to give wisdom freely. Wisdom is a feast set up for you and I. And he says, come, eat your fill. He doesn't give it begrudgingly. He doesn't lord it over us, the wisdom that we lack and the wisdom that, we, that he has. He says, come and feast freely. Eat your fill. Drink your fill. It's, a, it's laid out for you, and I give it to you freely. What does um, the sometimes sad King Solomon write in Proverbs? Do we remember what Solomon asked of God? Yeah. He's like, you could have riches. You could have peace for the land. You could have all of them. I mean, you could have anything. God lays out a feast in front of him. He says, you just choose something. He says, I want wisdom. The sad King Solomon, he's sometimes sad. I love Ecclesiastes. We see that he's sometimes sad. But here he has some hope, some level of hope and understanding. He says, for the Lord gives what? Wisdom. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. There is a direct response to the trial of the lack of wisdom that you and I face. And it is that God is the source of wisdom. And all you have to do is ask, and it will be freely given to you. But then, in, this, in the verses, we come to the second, uh, the second problem, the second trial that is mentioned as an example. How are we to come to God and ask for wisdom? With faith, and not what? Doubting. Yeah, we can't be doubting. He's, so let's look at the second trial. The second trial is regarding doubt that comes into our lives. It's the presence of doubt. If we are to have wisdom or any good gift, we must approach God with faith. Other biblical uh, references like Hebrews 11:6, it will say now without faith, it's impossible to please God because you must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Did that match up with the version I was up there? 
That's the version I, rem- I memorized. But I'm not sure if it quite matched up. But yeah, the, the problem, the, the, the presence of doubt is a trial. The only way it must be addressed is with the faith he gives us. That we believe we can come to him and he will lay out that feast. That we can literally drown in the comprehensive ocean of who, of who Christ is and what his word teaches. And we can blissfully drown there in the lack of doubt that he, that he provides and in the wisdom that he freely gives. One thing about the presence of doubt, I'm there all the time. The presence of doubt is strong. It's a trial that I walk through. And I find myself thinking of, uh, you know, our precious Simon Peter. What a wonderful example he was. I find myself being like, yeah, I'm like that guy. Not when he was doing the good stuff, when he was pretty much putting his foot in his mouth the entire time, right? Our precious Simon Peter. I'm, I'm always getting out of the boat and being like, I will walk to you. And I, there's a few steps where it's just great. And then the waves are just, and I'm just like, look at that wave, look at that wave. And he has to save me time and time again. He does, and he's so gracious to me. But these are trials that we walk through, the lack of wisdom, the presence of doubt, also the presence of riches. This is another thing that James mentions. He says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation. Listen, the presence of riches is not specifically written to those six figures and above. And we have a tendency to excuse ourselves from the topic of the presence of riches. My friend, if you drove here today, if you chose between three different outfits that you could have worn, and if you are pretty confident you will have lunch and dinner, you are wealthy beyond your wildest dreams compared to the rest of the world. None of us in the American church can ever excuse ourselves from the implications of what he says about riches because we are all fabulously wealthy. I love what James says. It is such, a, uh, such an indictment in verse um, 11. Verse 11, what, what he says about um, the rich man. He says the rich person, it says the rich person will wither away by pursuing activities. The rich person will wither away by pursuing mere activities. We in America are guilty. We pursue so much busyness at the expense of everything else. You need just look across social media and we find ourselves, what month of the year am I? If I were an animal, what would I be? If this, who cares? It is a blatant distraction from truth. It is a blatant distraction from the urgency that the gospel must go out, that there is limited time. We are so rich with our finances and our time, and yet we find ourselves perishing away just by pursuing activities. What does Paul write that comes along and supports James' point in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12? 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, he says, everything is permissible for me, 
But not everything is what? Helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. We have been brought under the control of so much. How many times do we check a notification that we just don't have to and doesn't matter? How much Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus or how much of that do we consume? And this, this book is left unread or it feels weird when we spend 45 minutes reading it. We're perishing away in our activities. And I'm the... I'm the chief, I'm the chief the chiefest sinner in the room. I'm the worst of I'm the worst of them. I know. So these are the trials that he mentions. Uh, a conclusion regarding that section. This is what the Lord gave me: the lack of wisdom, the presence of doubt, and the problem of riches are all trials which must be overcome by faith if they are ever to contribute to our spiritual maturity. They will never contribute to the spiritual maturity. This will just be a trial for a trial's sake, and no good will ever come out of it unless the lack of wisdom, the presence of doubt, and the problem of riches are all viewed as trials which must be overcome by faith if they're ever to contribute to our spiritual maturity. And now we come to the last point. Praise God, we might make it. Um, The most important thing I believe is found in verses 13 through 18. It's all important, but this is the conclusion that God helped me draw this this week. The most important thing about trials and maturity and faith, oh my, join me in verses 13 through 18, where we read, no one undergoing a trial should say I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. What comes from God? Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the word of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. The most important thing about trials and maturity and faith is an understanding that our trials either result from our personal sin, the personal sin of someone else, or the corporate sin of living in a fallen and broken world where bad things happen to good people. And yet, when the bad things happen to me, I find myself asking God, What are you doing? When the trouble is at my house, or when my expectations are are not met, or when what I thought was going to happen isn't what actually happens, or when things are unfair by my standards, I say to God, what are you doing? 
But the word says that all of the trials that come nigh my house, that come to my door, they are a result of my sin, the sin of someone else, or the sin of living in a broken and fallen world where bad things happen to good people all the time. That's what scripture teaches. And when I ask God, when the trial comes to my house, I say, God, where were you? What are you doing? You know what God gently answers me like the good father that he is? I've been doing the same thing I always said I was doing. I am a constant barrier between you and the justice of God, and I intercede for you daily. He says, I, you don't understand how your digestive system works. You don't have to remind yourself to breathe on a regular basis. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I have your hairs numbered. I am God. I have gone nowhere. I have done nothing outside of what I said I would do for you. And I love what James says in his last verse to us in this section. Because he reminds us, he reminds us in verse 16, he says, don't be deceived by thinking that the trials and the temptations come from God or have God as their source. He says, don't be deceived. That's false doctrine. That's poor teaching. But every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights who does not change uh, like shifting shadows. Boy, that sounds a lot like Romans 8, 28, doesn't it? But we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. It kind of sounds like Genesis 50, where at the end of, jo of Joseph's, Joseph's life, when he has suffered in slavery, he goes to his brothers, he says, listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But what is the conclusion that James draws in his final verse, verse 18? It says, by his own choice, speaking of God, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be the ki a kind of first fruits of his creatures. May I tell you, the most formidable weapon you have against temptation is always the word of God. It's where we have been birthed. It's where we have been conceived as followers of Christ. And I can prove it in the life of Jesus Christ himself. Because in the book of Matthew, right at the beginning, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. To be tempted by God, right? False. It's not biblical. It's never going to be true. He was not tempted by God. He was tempted by his enemy, who is just as real as he was that day. He hates you. He hates your kids. He hates your marriage. He hates that you're successful at your job. He hates the, he hates the work that, is, that God is doing in your life. He hates you so much and he is tempting you and he is trying to you know trying to blame shift all the time but what does jesus do he says first thing comes first off jesus is hungry right long time without food or water he's fasting led by the spirit satan says hey here's some here's some bread you're hungry take the easy way out taste it what does jesus say it is written. And what, what he says matters, but those are the most important words right there. Because when the temptation comes, we need to know what our first line of defense is and possibly the only line of defense that we need. Jesus says, it is written in the word that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. So then the enemy left. No, he didn't. He came another way. He says, hey, Jesus, stand on the edge of this thing. You know, God will protect you. Just uh, And sometimes you guys think I walk in faith. 
uh, standing on the edge of this thing too. Uh, but no, so he says, Jesus, stand on the edge of this thing. Do something reckless. Prove that you are who you are. You know, you, you could prove in God's will later who you are, but no, just do it now. Just prove who you are right now, Jesus. And Jesus says, it is written. It's written. Don't tempt the Lord your God. So then, then Satan leaves. No, he doesn't. He comes back. He throws everything but the kitchen, everything in the kitchen sink. He says, Jesus, you can have him all. Have it all. I show you all the nations of the world that I control. You can have it all. What's the one thing you have to do? Just bow down to me. And Jesus says, it is written. It is written. You only bow before God and him only will you serve. He says, go away, Satan. So as we look at the most important thing, may I suggest that it might be what's written in, in this book, which you guys know, if, if all of this Bible reading initiative and all of it doesn't go right, we're going to just blame this guy because it was his idea. I read it in a book. Um, you know what he says, though, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he's right. If this worked for Christ... And if James, like he says, we've been birthed in the, in the re- preaching and teaching and the, in the, the reading and the knowledge of, of God revealed in his word, he says, and now today, the one best thing that the church could do would be to set itself to enthrone God's word in the lives of its people. The rest would follow. That one thing in itself would go further in solving all problems, individual, social, and national, than anything else the church could do. God's word is the best weapon the church has and boy given the testimony of how Jesus endured temptation I believe that's true our, our worship team can come up and uh, we'll go into a time of, of worship and prayer and, and something that we've been doing on Wednesday nights is we've been really investing in in what prayer is supposed to be in our New Testament church, how we uh, get into a posture of prayer, how we build community around prayer, even as we're building community around the Word of God. And uh, something that, that really impressed me last week was that you guys answered the call to pray, to pray in an ongoing way that our corporate and building community around the Word of God, that our congregational reading plan would be a success because the enemy hates it. He hates that there was a hundred people this, this week that read the Bible together but separately. So I would say, even as we saw a movement to the altar last week, we must keep on doing this. We must keep on covering this plan and this direction that we are going in prayer. And the Lord gave me something else this week regarding people coming to the front. If there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus, we, we sometimes make this, sometimes if there's someone here who doesn't know, doesn't understand some of the stuff that we've talking about, talked about, you're just sitting and waiting for this to be over. Maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe none of this really makes sense because you don't know how loved you are by, by God. And by and how, how much he sacrificed for you to have a relationship with him. If there's someone sitting in here and we make them feel like they have to come down an aisle to come to Jesus, 
That's, that's not true. But we give this invitation pretty often, don't we, for people to come to know Christ. And some people in this room, uh, I remember when you came down this aisle to pray and receive Christ, and someone showed you in the Bible how you could be, how you could be saved. And I, and I love those experiences. But here's what I want to say. If we build a community of prayer where we are constantly coming forward, we are constantly answering the call to prayer, we are constantly understanding our need to get in a posture of prayer and build community around biblical prayer, what will happen to the person that we ask to come down the aisle? They will start to see, I'm not the only one. No, you're not. Is there someone down there who might talk to me? Yeah, there is every single time. Every single time you come down there, the person who's, been, who's, who's bowing down and praying right next to you, that's someone you can talk to and interact with and ask a question. We might start to see people being comfortable and being vulnerable because we have been comfortable and vulnerable first. It's so much easier to not be the only one coming and getting into a repentant posture before God. It's designed to thrive around community. And when we come together, the person who doesn't understand will feel like there's just, they're not alone. And they're not. Father, would you cause us to respond? Would you cause us to, oh, would you cause us to just confound the work of the enemy because of what your word says. God, thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. Thank you that you can take our trials and you can cause them to, to, to produce a spiritual maturity because of our faith in you. God, I ask that if there are people going through trials, that if there are people who feel called to pray for, um, the, for the congregational reading of your word, if there are people that know there's someone who needs to be supported and loved, that this, that this place would just be flooded with a response of people walking in obedience. And if there's someone here who doesn't have a relationship with you, I ask that they would feel so compelled and so comfortable to come up and ask someone this simple question, who is Jesus. Father, would you move and work and have your way in this time? In Jesus' name, amen.